trashy pulp novels of the world have anything to offer? Are bestsellers all they're hyped up to be? The Terrible Book Club explores whether or not you really can judge a book by its cover or its ridiculous synopsis. If you've ever seen a book and thought, ugh, who's reading this? We probably are. Hello and welcome to episode 98 of the Terrible Book Club. I'm Chris and this is Paris. Hello. This time we read When Trumpets Ring, The Battle, A True Story by Gregory Hetzer. This was published in 2016 by Inspiring Voices, which seems to be a self-publishing slash consulting firm of some kind. I found this out in the wild. Um, it was just some in some thread, probably the Trump thread on C-SPAM which is part of the Something Awful Forums. Yes, I have stairs in my house. Do you? We, uh... Uh, I mean, I guess technically I have stairs, but they're, like, dusty and I falling you an apart. A- I-, I bought you an account. I-, I know, that's what I'm saying. I have stairs, <laughs> but they've been in... They've fallen into disrepair, have not been used in years. Uh, yeah, when you... when So when Chris initially put this on the schedule, I thought it said he found this in a comment on C-SPAN, which would have been funnier... <laughs> I think. Um, so did Close. somebody just did somebody just like post this apropos of nothing? I mean, yeah, I'm sure they were just like, "Law, look at this" or something. But I, I forget exactly the context because there's been, uh, I don't know, like a million posts in tr- various Trump threads on that forum. Yeah, so that's fair. I've I've been reading them for years. Yeah, Chris loves stairs. Okay. If this is your first time listening to The Terrible Book Club, what we normally do is not talk about whether or not we have stairs in our house, but instead we talk about books we've read that we thought were going to be bad. And we choose books that we think are going to be bad based on their cover, title, summary, or some combination of the three. Sometimes we also read books that our patrons, listeners, or friends recommend. In general, though, we do the opposite of what most people do in a bookstore or while they're browsing the internet looking for something to read. And usually this experiment results in a disappointing read, but once in a while we actually end up liking the book. Uh, For today's content warnings, aside from our usual barnyard language, we've got uh, abortion, anti-Islamic rhetoric, and some serious patriarchy. (laughs) Uh, Mega patriarchy. Yeah, so if those things are a problem, skip this one. Uh, Before we begin, though, getting into the meat of the book, just want to do some brief follow-ups from our last episode. So uh, we actually published an extra episode last week on Election Day in the U.S. Uh, We figured people might need a chuckle, so we put that one out early. And we got some responses. So um, our patron, Martin pointed out that Calvin and Hobbes is an amazing comic and he is a hundred percent right. Somehow yeah, Chris, I I, I forgot. somehow well, Chris and I like totally forgot about that while we were recording the last episode. Calvin and Hobbes wasn't in any of like the Sunday comics of the, like the newspapers I would read. Really? 
Weird. Yeah. Okay. Well, in any case, thank you for the reminder, Martin, um, about a wonderful long-running newspaper comic um, that was far better than most of the shit we were talking about on the last episode. Uh, yeah. So once again, Calvin, Calvin and Hobbes, great comic. Thanks, Martin. Uh, Kieran, another fine TBC patron, also reached out uh, and <laughs> mentioned that when I was talking about how my boyfriend found that book we read in the last episode, the comic one, uh, about how when I was describing the basement being like dusty and forlorn and unfinished, it seemed like it was going to be another Karnacki episode. <laughs> I was like, actually, yeah, that's fair. That's fair. So what Tanner should have done is shot wildly into the darkness after discovering the book. Yeah, you're right. He really should have. It's too bad that we don't have a gun. Um, I guess he could have thrown the cat wildly into the darkness. <laughs> um, but uh, Have its neck broken by a mysterious hand? <laughs> you're right fuck oh don't throw your cat into voids um so funnily enough kieran uh my boyfriend was listening to the episode and while he was listening to it he actually remembered where the books came from so my pet theory was wrong and they were not actually here when he moved in he said that he he just never mentioned it and couldn't or just couldn't remember, you know, when he gave the books to me. But listening to the episode and hearing me describe it jogged his memory. And he was like, wait, that's not actually true. Uh, he apparently went to a yard sale in Hopkins, Minnesota, a while ago. And it just seemed like a really wacky yard sale. So he pulled over and checked some stuff out. And he bought uh, actually the the book we read last episode and lesbian nuns they were together at the book sale at the yard Two sale one. and he did buy them because they were very inexpensive and they seemed i don't know kind of funny so it was just like this on a whim yard sale thing uh yard sale purchase so that's the true origin of the book from the last episode uh he said the yard sale proprietors were an elderly jewish couple that's that's all he really knew uh, I don't know. I guess he must have talked. I mean, this is like well before pandemic times, you know, when you could just roll up to someone's house and take their old shit and not worry about getting a deadly virus. <laughs> oh, but um, not so wacky anymore. Oh, I know. But anyhow, uh, those are our follow ups from last episode. You know what? Speaking of patrons, since Martin and Kieran reached out to us, uh, we figured, you know, it's time to thank those patrons up front. It's been a fucking hell of a year. And honestly, it's incredible that we not only retained our flock of patrons, but we actually gained a few people. Y'all are just the absolute best. Thank you so much for supporting thank this show. You very um, much. I mean, Terrible Book Club, you know, we'll talk about this a little more in episode 100, but it's been doing real well this year. So thanks a lot. Um, so to all of our patrons, thank you. Thank you, Dari. Thank you, Greg. Thank you, Will. Thanks, Veronica. Thank you, Dee. Thanks, Lynn. Thank you, Sinya. Thank you, Yakub. Thank you, Bobby Blackcat. Thanks to Jensina. Thank you to Mayo Cat. Thanks to Elliot. Thank you to Kieran. Thanks, Martin. Thank you to Jay. Thank you, Scott. And thank you to our newest patron, Luchek J again. Thank you for joining us, our most recent edition. So yeah. Thanks for your YouTube commentary as well. It's not bad. <laughs> oh yeah most of the youtube commentary oh yeah that's true yeah uh luchek j again big big youtube commentator him and he and mr rat will have to fight it out for for best youtube comment <laughs> commenter but uh thank you all seriously it's um it's been really um it's been a little little ray of hope this year so thank you yeah all right cool so we did that first so you know what you don't have to listen to us do it later all right let's get into this fucking book uh all right chris i'm gonna read the summary 
the back of the book summary, and then Chris is going to read us the character setting and then the, the summary that we have constructed. <clears throat> so this is the published summary for this book. <clears throat> is it possible for a wealthy man to do the right thing, trust in the Lord unconditionally, and walk with him? I say yes. I know, because I did. I gave back all of my wealth. I trusted in Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, and just paid darn good attention. What is the most important thing to a father's heart? It is his children. We are all God's children. And it is up to us to do the right thing and take care of our young and vulnerable, the unborn. I believe with all of my heart that if we take care of the unborn, that God will take care of us. And that is why I set out to make change to existing fundraisers for ultrasound machines, set machines in crisis centers months or even years before it is time. Usually within seven weeks, any saved, lives saved would be a miracle. That's what I did. Seven machines in one year. Lives that would not have existed today, and I knew I was doing something right because the gates of hell opened up around me. From the death of seven of my loved ones, four by suicide, one in my business, and what I acquired from the heavens was nothing short of a miracle. From meeting the three men in white three times with three messages, the Blessed Mother once standing with a young lady beside her to St. Michael not once but twice of this world. So that escalated quickly. Uh, that uh-huh. <laughs> started kind of like, okay, this is a person's autobiography. And then it just went wildly out of control. Um, so I actually have some some news. I don't know if it's good or bad, but um so if you thought that was weird, the book is that the book has no semblance of normalcy at all. It's all insane. Uh Chris, take take it away. Okay, um, so uh, Paris tasked me with writing our summary for this. So, you know, we've started doing this thing where we summarize the book in our way at the top of the episode just so that we don't have this need to sort of, you know, try to chronologically go through everything in the book and try to so that we can just have our talking points outright. But even though even though this book right up front has a bullet point ordered list of things that happen it still makes absolutely no sense in terms of trying to order things chronologically because even that bullet pointed list is extremely vague, perhaps only mildly less vague than the contents of the book itself. So I did my best to just give you guys the general flavor of what I read and what I felt in this summary here. I think the characters I think, and setting. Yeah, I was going to say, I think all we know is that it takes place in America, in Michigan, between 2008 and 2016. And Mr. Gregory Hetzer is the main character because it's an autobiography of him. The, he's, his wife shows up sometimes. He's got some children and not all of them show up. I'm, like, I'm pretty sure at least two or three of them are never mentioned. Yeah, <laughs> that's correct. And there's, like, a couple of friends and business partners around him that are very offhandedly mentioned. But here's my attempt at summarizing this book. Greg was smoking and drinking on his yacht when it all started. Well, no, actually, it started some other time. No, actually, wait, this other time, maybe? He heard the Holy Spirit. His family was attacked by uh, ghosts? Reproductive rights activists? Very unclear. At some point, he is running away from multiple tornadoes in separate incidences. He was always rushing from one mishap to the next, trying to get funding for ultrasound machines so he can show pregnant women their unborn fetuses so they can decide against having an abortion. There is no conflict or chronological buildup to anything. It's just a series of mildly shitty things that happen to him that he categorizes as a battle. 
I think he's just a little soft on the inside, really, because um, a lot of the stuff that is, like, described as horrible things happening to him, it's like, my friend fell and broke his leg. My priest friend, the hubcap fell off his car that I let him borrow. Yeah, but and then somehow those things are equivalent to a bunch of people in his life committing suicide. And you're like, I don't know if those are on the same (laughs) level there, you know? That's the best I could do, Paris. I don't know if you feel like I accurately really (laughs) captured what was going on here. I mean, there is really no way to capture what's going on in this book. Uh, We'll we'll obviously read some passages just so you get that, that flavor. That's probably mostly what we're going to do. But uh, before we get into how we felt about the book, I do want to get something important out of the way. Uh, This book is obviously anti-abortion, pro-pregnancy, pro-parenting, and pro-adoption. Chris and I are supportive of reproductive rights. So obviously we're a little at odds there, very at odds there. Um, So I I just want to make this clear that like, um, we're going to, try to focus on the content of the book um, and not focus on the uh, objective here, which is to get... Actually, I don't even know what his objective is. <laughs> <laughs> That's kind of part of... The, he's just saying that, yes, I put ultrasound machines in these clinics and I, I, he might be convincing you, the reader, to try and join his cause. Yeah, I think that's what he's trying to do. And the funny thing here is that I think, I, I think he, like, oh man, like a lot of people who are anti-abortion, they're like, we want fewer abortions. It's like, yeah, I also want fewer abortions. We just, we just want to go about that in very, very different ways. Um, and something, <clears throat> something else that's really. Um, a big point in this book are crisis pregnancy centers. And I do want everyone to keep in mind that crisis pregnancy centers are, they're not like real medical clinics. Sometimes they'll have real nurses and doctors, but not all the time. Um, and even when they do, they're, um, they're actually exempt from regulatory licensure and credentialing oversight that applies to real healthcare facilities. So This can lead to women getting pressured or even lied to about their options to handle an unexpected, unwanted, or otherwise troubling pregnancy. So, um, you know, and I mentioned this because in the book, the author is just really, really all about crisis pregnancy centers (laughs) and sees them as this, this, this glorious tool to help save lives. And I don't know. I mean, he makes some, some offhanded references to supporting, pregnant women and how he wants to turn every house into an Elizabeth's house. It seems like he imagines he's imagining a world where literally everyone in America would take in a pregnant person and help them get through a pregnancy, which I don't really know how you would convince everyone to do that. Um, this is sort of the tough. model of societal help that people from this side sort of buy into, where they don't want to be forced to do it through taxation or anything like that. They want just people to have the option to do it, and then people should do it out of the goodness of their hearts, which is, yes, okay, that would be a wonderful <laughs> thing if that was the, you know, was feasible. But let's be real. There's plenty of people that won't put up to help or for these resources to be available to single mothers or people that are dealing with an unexpected ch- child. Yeah. I mean, and, uh, I, I mean, he, he talks about that 
But I think the, the bigger issue is that pro the whole pro-life support and the idea of pro-life, you know, anti-abortion. I feel like all that stuff just ends at the baby's birth. Like, yes. it, like if pro-life folks really wanted to save lives and save the children, as they so often state, then they'd also be totally behind free and widely accessible childcare, education, healthcare, and other systems to support young mothers and their children. Um, and they'd also be <clears throat> supportive of other things that prevent abortion, like um, comprehensive and accurate sex education, access to um, medical supplies, you know, not just healthcare. So I, th- I just think there's a lot of things that often just get dropped off because people want to focus on the very, uh, the aspects of this that can be more emotional, um, like using ultrasounds to make women considering abortions look at their unborn fetus to try to develop a connection, uh, like an emotional connection between them and the fetus. Uh, anyway, it's been a lot of talk about that. I guess I just wanted to be clear that we obviously have very, very different views, starkly different views from the author. Wanted to get that done out front and just point out that we're going to keep the rest of our discussion today to critique of the actual book. So that's going to talk about format and consistencies, the ease or <laughs> ease or lack of ease of reading, descriptive phrasing, um, and whether it actually succeeds in getting its points across. We may also call out blatant falsehoods, but we're not going to try to spend any more time talking about the abortion debate uh, just because that's, you know, we're a book review show. Uh, I just want not that kind of podcast. I, yeah, I just wanted to be transparent about how we felt like I, I feel yes. like that's that's what you should do. I don't I don't want it to be like, a you know, uh, there's something hidden like, yeah, no, we're fucking pro choice. And yeah, I gave you a summary. Anyhow. All right. All moving right. on to the book. The book. All right. So. When Trumpets Ring, The Battle, A True Story of Gregory Hetzer's Life. Uh, let's let's start off with, uh, I actually found two things in this book that were not awful, Chris. I found. I can agree with these points. Yeah. So, all right. The two things that were not terrible about this book. Uh, the author, Mr. Hetzer, is clearly aware that he has made mistakes in his life and he is trying to better himself. He has good intentions. He has good intentions for himself, um, for others, for his family and friends. He clearly is expending a lot of effort to do what he thinks is right. Um, secondly, so we didn't discover this until about 40% of the way through the book, but Mr. Hetzer states that he has ADHD and dyslexia. And despite having those conditions that make uh, writing a book and working with words very difficult, he still gave writing a book a try. I mean, I don't know. It's it's really hard to do something that doesn't come naturally to you and present it to the world. So I got to congratulate him on doing that. I mean, he at least tried, you know, and he stated a few times how difficult writing is for him and how much he dislikes it and finds words difficult, finds it difficult to um, coalesce his thoughts into words. So I think, you know, it's... um, it's a brave thing to try to do something that's really hard for you, right? Certainly commendable. Yeah. Uh, however, yes. the rest however. of this conversation is going to be about how terrible this book is because it was. And I just want to point out that although we've acknowledged that the author has some learning disabilities and, and conditions that would affect his ability to write a book well, uh, he didn't reach out to for assistance to kind of combat any of those things. So that's, that's kind of why this is really bad. Um, I don't 
when you have conditions like this, it's fine and okay and good to get help with these things. I'm a disabled person myself with my vision, and I have to turn to others for help with certain things so that they can turn out good. Usually something to do with like graphic design for arts on like some of my music or albums or things like that. I always have to ask people, hey, how's this idea looking? Even even though I rarely do something completely on my own, I'll still turn to others if there is a part that I'm doing or some part of the process to just sort of make sure that my disability isn't affecting the quality of something too much. Yeah, I mean, obviously this is a, and the reason that this is important is because when you're writing a book or I guess, especially when you're writing, when you're using words and common, commonly understood <laughs> phrases and language, um, you're clearly trying to get a message out to other people. And I don't, I'm not advocating for like conformity, you know, like, Oh, if you have some kind of disability or condition or are somehow neurologically atypical that you need to, I don't know, filter everything you do through the lens of someone who's more abled in that way. Uh, but I think that when, when you're trying to write a book for other people, you gotta, you gotta do, you gotta make that work. Uh, you know, just, counts. yeah. So again, it's a bit of a bit of a nuanced thing. Don't want to sound like I'm telling people that, you know, they have to conform to the hegemonic structure here. But when you're writing a book for other people, for the wider world, people have to be able to understand it. So I feel like that's kind of a basic thing. <laughs> um, yeah. And, and because this author seemingly didn't have anyone to edit this or help him format it at all. It's just a disastrous mess. I mean, even if you agree with the author, even if you yourself are pro-life and and are, I don't know, an ardent supporter of crisis centers and you believe in his social and religious views, um, I, I don't even, you wouldn't like this book because it doesn't work. Um, the publisher he hired clearly did nothing to help him edit or clean up what is essentially, I don't know, a bunch of rough diary entries stitched together by thought fragments. Ideas are logically inconsistent, unclear, and there are just total falsehoods in here. I mean, when I when I started reading it, it immediately struck me as the unholy union of the book from episode 50 and the dog cop memoir. <laughs> that is exactly how this it reads. It didn't quite veer off into quite as insane a land as episode 50 did, but it's Oh, it definitely some of that does. Line. It definitely does, Chris. Uh, we're gonna have a discussion about that. There's there are angels, there, that... there are BDSM angels in this in this man's <laughs> autobiography. I'm that's not an exaggeration. Um, it's just real wacky. Uh, I mean, Chris, you had a great note about, about this, about what the book essentially is. It's so first of all, the first thing I want to say is that Gregory Hetzer has become unstuck in time, first of all. <laughs> Because it, it starts off in 2008 with him on his yacht, drinking and smoking, which is sort of, I guess, his way of setting himself up as, like, a, a typical wealthy man. man. Yeah. Yeah. He, he's got all the life's going good for him. And then it just kind of hops around from random month of a certain year. It, it's not even specific about what part of the year it would be. He'll put it in sort of a time thing that's like, it was late February, early March 2008. 
which is not okay i guess like you kind of pinpointed it down and it's not like i need exact dates either but just like just pick one you know just just make it a little bit clear and also don't hop around from like 2008 to 2011 randomly because there was some part of the thing that you were talking about that was vaguely connected and then three pages later we're back in like 2009 and then it's 2015 again <laughs> yeah it's- for some reason yeah, and, and also when he's flipping back and forth between points, they're often, they're not developed points. So you are left totally confused. Let me see if I can find a great example of this. What, yeah, the, the second part of my summary for this book is it's essentially Greg driving from one mishap to the next. <laughs> yeah. He's always like in his car, like frantically trying to get to either a crisis center to like install a machine or fundraise for a machine or like, like I said before, like his priest friend's hubcap came off in the snow and he had to go pick his priest friend up. Mm -hmm. And that is equivalent in terribleness to when a bomb went off in front of his business like five years later which is mentioned like three pages later. Yeah, I mean, that there, this is also this idea that seems to be crucial to his life story, which is a phone number that he sees on a billboard. And we never find out what the phone number is or what the phone number goes to. Like, what was that about? I don't know. He never specifies. Um, my guesses are that it was some kind of knights of columbus pro-life thing because he joins the knights of columbus thinking that thinking that this organization which is like a i don't know what what is that like a fraternal organization of weirdos they're like like shitty masons or something i don't, I don't know yeah i think it might be based around military vets maybe uh, yeah i'm not sure i don't think i don't think you know, so knights of columbus halls are where a lot of you know shitty local shows hardcore, happens yeah hardcore <laughs> shows go down so that's about as much as i know about them yeah i don't really know I'm not sure what the deal is. Like, if you wanted to see a bunch of, you know, like, 20-something to 30-something beefy white dudes stomping around and yelling about their various things that they're angry about, check out our Knights of Columbus, you know, post-pandemic, I would Uh, say. Yeah, I don't... I'm trying to find a... um, Oh, like, this is is a great... um, A great section... Once again, later on that day, I find myself sitting in my office thinking about all that happened that day. I was remembering what an old friend told me. When everything is going bad for you and nothing in your favor, you're doing something right. (laughs) I took a deep breath knowing I must push on and move forward. It only got worse from there. From a very expensive finished basement flooding with no insurance to a phone call while I was driving up north for a getaway informing me that my largest garage at my company was on fire. I was completely numb and I asked if everyone was okay. Luckily, the answer was yes. I told them to stand back, call the fire department, and that the most important thing is that everyone is safe. This happened to be one of the buildings that I accidentally let the insurance lapse and was unable to insure it for several weeks. I happened to make a comment to my wife before we left. I told her that that building is one of the most important buildings that we own, and if anything happened to it, we would be in trouble. At that point, my wife looked and me, looked and me, asked, John, what is going on? John? Wait, <laughs> that's not the author's name. The author's name is Gregory. That's weird. Uh, I, <laughs> I told her I didn't know, but that we are in God's hands and everything will be okay. 
we had a very peaceful weekend, and as usual, all good things must come to an end. Uh, very peaceful, despite the flooding and fire. Uh, the third week in April, it started out with a bang. Nothing has changed. Wrecked cars, lawsuits, equipment failures, being audited, and much more. Then it starts at home with my family. Strange, unexplainable events were happening in our home, and at this time, my family is starting to get scared. I took them all aside and assured them that everything was going to be okay and told each of them to continue saying your guardian angel prayer and ask Jesus to protect you. The intensity of the fight around me was out of control. I did not know what to do. I prayed and prayed, not knowing why my family is being involved. I kept thinking it has to get better. All I have to do is trust in God, knowing everything will be all right. It's like you never find out what was what unexplainable <laughs> things were happening in his house. He never tells you. You have no idea. So you're like, wait, are they, are they being fucking haunted? Like, what's going How on? How do we jump from his like basement flooding yeah. to a building catching on fire to his family being attacked? Uh, yeah, I don't know. And this is all in one weekend in April? I, maybe. Maybe March, April. Um, That's I mean, how the whole book is. So there's like... And then there's other things where you're just... It's total non sequiturs. Even though he, he insists they're connected. For example, a few pages later, he's talking about how he... Um, his daughter borrowed a car from him and a bunch of mechanics said nothing was wrong with it. But his daughter was like, no, there's something, there's something weird with the steering. Finally, he gets, you know, like a second and third opinion. Someone finally says, yeah, it was a broken gear. They're pretty difficult to find. At that moment, I said, thank you to the Holy spirit for watching over my children, realizing what a disaster this could have been in the mountains of West Virginia, which is where his daughter was driving. The next sentence is literally this or the next passage. I knew then what I must do. I need to call a Catholic priest I had met earlier in the year, Father Joseph. Father was a visiting priest from Fiji and is now a military chaplain for the United States military. He came and blessed our house. He sat down with my family and reassured them that everything is all right, and I believe that helped tremendously. Still, to this day, my family talks about it. Okay, so I think what you mean is you were so concerned about all the dangerous things that were happening that you needed to call this guy to bless your house. But just the way that it's laid out, it's just it's just not easy to follow. Um, he then will talk about things that you don't know about yet. Like, it is early in July, and I just got back from the ribbon cutting in Ann Arbor. And you're like, ribbon cutting for what? You haven't established <laughs> they that They just were... cut a ribbon somewhere in Ann Arbor. <laughs> he had to be there. It wasn't there. even in front of anything. <laughs> the... It was just a ri- someone stretched a ribbon out, and they cut it, and that's it. Well, you know, every time Joanne Fabrics or Michaels gets new ribbon, they need, they need, you know, they need official ribbon cutters. There has to be a oh, ceremony, you know. <laughs> yes. <laughs> every time you cut a ribbon, uh, an oh. anti-abortion billboard goes up in Michigan. <laughs> oh, fuck. <laughs> Um, and then there's just these weird descriptions. Sorry, this most of our review is just going to be us reading parts from the book so you understand what we mean. Um, also, th- thank you, Mr. Hetzer, for allowing us to reproduce parts of your book for critical review up front, as it's mentioned in the very first page over here. Well, that's an unnecessary thing to state because that's legally protected under copyright law. So course, whatever. But uh, just saying <laughs> that, hey, man, you said. Yeah, you did say you wanted this. You asked for this. Uh, maybe you didn't, but... Later on in July, I am sitting in my hot tub after a long run having doubts. My mind is going crazy thinking I am pushing too hard and not letting things fall into place on their own. I was praying for hope, strength, and wisdom. Just then, I looked up, and I saw what looked like a zipper, and the sky opened up. It was an unexplainable bright light that I had never seen before, and I was like, oh, you looked up and God just unzipped to take a piss? Like, that's just- 
oh, sorry, bro. I didn't stop. Uh, hold on. I'll go over here instead. That's such a weird, a weird way to describe that. Um. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm just scrolling into... The sky like, unzipped. The sky so unzipped. Um, oh, and then, like, his son has a seizure due to a drug overdose, but, like, you don't find out it's a drug overdose for several chapters. He just mentions it, and then several chapters like, later... Like, out of the blue, his son falls over and has this I'll I'll, I'll read this. I'll read this. Uh, I was at the table eating lunch, and I heard my wife scream my name. I ran into the living room and I noticed my son was on the floor and he quit breathing. I gave him a hug and told him I loved him. I went outside and I began to pray, asking God not to be not like, yo, you're not going to attempt CPR or call 911. I mean, maybe his wife was calling 911, but why wouldn't you attempt CPR or I don't know, do why would you just be like, love you and then go out to be like, fuck off outside to pray? Like, pray right next to him if you need to pray. Pray while you're doing CPR. It's possible. Like, if... Uh, just so weird. Can can I jump over to the time where his wife suspects she has carbon monoxide poisoning? <laughs> and dude, first thing the dude said, he's on the phone with her. She's like, honey, I think I've got carbon monoxide poisoning. And he's like, can this wait till after my meeting? And she's like, yeah. And then, and then he's like, you know, but then I thought about it and I canceled my meeting. Like, what? Why would she... <laughs> God. Okay, and oh. then she goes to the hospital to be treated for said carbon monoxide poisoning, yes. and then she's like, "Okay, I'm gonna go home with the kids, where the carbon monoxide <laughs> leak is still happening." Yeah, because you didn't say anything about. Yeah, they never mentioned getting that carbon monoxide leak addressed. Um, also, when they go to check out her carbon monoxide poisoning. I, I don't know. They never mention if any of the kids get checked out either. So that's weird. But they, we find out that, that Greg has uh, um, d- serious diabetes. Like, like serious. Incredibly, like, and he, he basically tells the doctors. Like diabetes type C. Yeah, like he, the new. <laughs> he tells the doctors to basically fuck off after a day and is like. I, uh, hang on. There's... He's like, they were like, you're, I can't believe you're walking around in here. You should be in like, a coma. Nah, dude, <laughs> nah, yeah. dude I'm fine. I want to go home. And they let him. And he's like, I'm not going to listen to any of this, their treatment options. I'm going to leave it in the hands of God. Oh, here we, here, no, here's the passage. Um, it says, what a difference one year makes. My blood sugar was once at 900 and doctors are saying that I will be a diabetic for the rest of my life. And that is if I even make it through the night. Having to count on insulin to live, that was not acceptable to me. I knew through the Holy Spirit I will be fine, and to this day my sugar level is normal. The decision to leave the hospital the next morning and not to return to the doctor's office was the right choice. Thinking all they did was add to the problem, their answer was pills, and my answer back was to trust God and everything would be all right. So here's the thing. He, he notes that he did improve his eating so he eats healthy exercises, um, and that obviously can make a huge difference if you have diabetes. That can help you to become healthier sometimes it even reverses the disease and and you can actually get through diabetes um without having to take insulin but i mean also there's different types of diabetes i'm not general I'm, I'm just saying a quick like yes eating healthier and exercising can definitely combat uh having diabetes but saying like fuck the doctors i'm not going to listen to their advice or take any medication maybe not the best idea and then as you read the book he mentions all these health problems he has. And he's like, I don't understand. 
Why is this happening? Why am I in so much pain all the time? Why can't I sleep? Why do my legs not work? Uh, I don't know. Maybe it's the undiagnosed, diabetes, the untreated diabetes that you've let ravage your body over the last several years. Maybe connect dot A to B here. He mentions having like sleep paralysis or something mm-hmm. similar at one time. Yeah. And he thought it was like, I'm literally paralyzed. And then he just got better through prayer. And it's like, or you just had an episode of sleep paralysis. Or maybe the diabetes affected you again, because I'm pretty sure some like inability to move can be part of that sometimes as well or difficulty moving oh yeah i'm not i mean i'm not obviously i'm not a fucking expert but yeah just a lot of things in the book that he doesn't he attributes to some random affliction and like evil it's like dude maybe it's just your untreated fucking diabetes or like maybe it's just just another condition maybe it's unrelated but just go to the doctor like (laughs) i want a little aside here um i had an uncle pass away a couple weeks ago, who had diabetes and who kind of didn't seek treatment early enough to have a better chance of fighting back against it. So pay attention to your doctors, please. It matters. Yeah, I'm going to agree with that. You know, um, anyway. And again, a lot of this stuff comes off as funny when it's not just because of the way it's presented in this really kind of disjointed uh, way without any detail. You know, so a few pages later, he's describing um, he and his son get into an argument. They actually get into a physical altercation. Um, I'm fairly certain. Yeah, it says it was very aggressive and physical. So he gets into a verbal and physical fight with his uh, uh, maybe older teenage or maybe a young adult son, not really sure. And his kid runs away. So after a few minutes, Greg's like, all right, I got to find him. So he gets in his car and goes to find his son. Um, he finds his son running down the road a few miles from home. Greg opens the door and the kid gets in the truck and collapses. Gregory says, I helped him into the truck, got him home safely, and helped him into the house. Very little conversation was going on. Usually in a situation like this in the past, it helped to work out, run, and build strength. So I did. I finished my workout, sat down with my wife and son in the living room, and began to talk about his problem that he has been facing the last several years. So his son's addicted to pharmaceutical drugs, clearly is having some really serious uh, physical and emotional and mental effects of this drug, and yet he's like, you know what? I got to pump some iron before we get into this conversation. You wait right here, struggling son who may need medical attention. I'm going to go lift some weights and then I'll be right back. <laughs> like, who does that? I mean, it would it would be different if he was like, if he had explained maybe my son was not in immediate danger, didn't need medical attention. My wife talked to him and I was so stressed out and angry that I had to go decompress by you know, doing, doing some exercise. And then, you know, if he, if he detailed the emotional journey and explained to us that maybe his son wasn't fucking dying in front of him, it, it wouldn't be hilariously bad, but because we lack all of that detail, it is hilariously bad. <laughs> and again, that's an, yeah, we're that's not another... laughing at this, at these horrible things. Like, obviously it's terrible if your kid 
is addicted to pharmaceutical drugs and it's ruining his life and your relationship. It's obviously terrible if your friend or family member commits suicide. It's terrible if you're a bomb goes off at your business and, or whatever, all these, these litany of crazy things. It's, we're not making fun of that. The, but the way that it comes across is unintentionally hilarious. And that's why this book is bad. Yeah. So the other problem is that everything is extremely vague. Like when you mentioned the physical altercation there and he just says there was a physical altercation. It's not like I need the blow by blow, you know, play by play of the fight or anything, but just glossing over that and a lot of other physical things. He mentions that this time with his wife where he's like, we really got into it. And then she had to stay at her mom's place. And I'm like, what? He said, once again, he said it got very aggressive and physical. So he admits that, I, I mean, that he and his wife got into a physical fight and she almost left him over it right at the beginning. And he just kind of glosses over that. Just like right at the beginning, he also glosses over how he was arrested and interrogated as part of a, a car theft ring or something. But you literally yeah. just get a sentence for each of those things. Yeah. Like one or two sentences, then you, no explanation, no discussion of like how he was really innocent or what happened or... It's again, it's just why, why would anyone want to read this strange bullet journal about someone else's life with like shorthand? It's like, yeah, it's like a bulleted list written in shorthand of someone's life. Why would anyone want to read this? You can't understand what's going on. You're not getting any depth about this man's life and his choices. Like, I don't see what the point of this is. Like I said, it really reads like one man frantically driving from one mishap to the next. The one that sticks out to me really is the, the at some point someone trips and falls in a snowbank and breaks their leg. And that's just treated as like this extra horrible thing that happened to him that he has to deal with. Well, I think he put it in because it makes him look good because he helped get the woman out of the snowdrift. And... Sure, but... but... <sighs> I, because everything is so detached and sudden and yeah. like from one point to the next, we have no time to take in any specific emotional detail and try to consider that. It it, it just really reads like he's got like constantly got flop sweat going and he's like trying to get from his business explosion to his, you know, son's, <laughs> you know, mental breakdown to his priest friend's hubcap coming off to him stubbing his toe later or something, you know? Yeah, like, like behind this book, there's just a constant like... <laughs> like, that's like the whole time, even though it's real, supposed to be really serious. It just, and like I said, it just ends up being absurd. He describes his mother like dropping dead in a paragraph. Oh my and God, yeah. It's uh, treated like anything else, like, like very quick. Yeah, and oh, I mean, actually, while we're before we get there, while we're we were, I was just talking about him getting to that altercation with his son. Right after that, they talk about how his son was addicted to drugs, and the author himself mentions that he's had struggles with um, various substances, whether it's alcohol or other drugs. Um, and then his son ended up having similar problems, which is of course really really tough. Um, but they describe it in this strange way. So yeah, they talk about how. He actually did need medical attention. Remember that time a few chapters ago where we were talking about how his son passed out and then he like hugged him and then went outside to pray? Yeah, so so his his wife did call 911 and he did need to go to the hospital. He had a grand mal seizure apparently and 
you know, he writes nearly it as died. Grand M A U L seizure. That's not how it's M A L. Oh, really? I see. I didn't catch that. I don't know. No, it's but... a Grand Mal seizure, oh. not a Grand Darth Maul seizure. <laughs> oh, uh, and anyway, they're talking about getting him help, and they end up kind of selling their son to a Scientology uh, rehabilitation facility in California. Well, they don't sell him because they pay the money, so they... they... Yeah, but they kind of just send him there on his own, which is a really weird thing to do with a vulnerable person. It's really horrible, actually. Like, they describe, like, the the person on the phone because he just, like, Googles this thing or something. Uh, He calls him up. It says... Yeah, uh... They turned on the computer hoping to find an answer. There it was out of nowhere. We found it. Fresh Start Rehabilitation Center in San Diego, California. And then he's like, oh, the, the, the person on the other line says, oh, your son needs to come here right now. He's at a level five. He could obviously hurt himself if you don't send him right away, which is some horrifyingly pushy sales for a place like that, man. Yep. Like, and it's a, I need you to look for the next flight out to Los Angeles where our detox center is. There is no time to waste. Um, and so they're in Michigan, but they immediately find the next flight out to L.A. And um, they send him on his own. They bring him to the airport, but then he just goes there by himself, which like if you're dealing with someone who is struggling with addiction and is potentially, you know, ha- just had a medical episode where they almost died. Why would you put them on a plane by themselves the next day? I believe traditionally in these situations, the rehab center sends someone to the airport to pick them up. Um, still, I still don't think that's a great idea. Still, don't It's not, it. and this seems incredibly predatory. Uh, yeah, and then, so if you do a little Googling, uh, yeah, this place, it's, what, what is it, Nar- Narconon? Is that what? Yeah. Yeah, it's like a Scientology was... offshoot. It's not part of the church, but it's run by a Scientologist. It's a complex web of misery and lies you can look it up for yourself but it's a you know a rehab center that doesn't do much other than just tell people to stop doing drugs which they cold turkey them right yeah like, i think i think so i'm pretty sure i'm not up. yeah i'm not again i'm not positive don't take that as gospel i would yeah. look it up but um they're yeah they, and these centers um these narconon centers kind of constantly end up closing and reopening with different names kind of like a shitty pizza place where you find out there's like rats in the sauce and they're like oh no and instead of leaving they're just like instead of pinocchios they're like we're now pinocchio's uncle less rats you know that's kind of how these places work they get shut down by the state or county and Man. then they pop up again somewhere else so i like pinocchio's uncle better when there was rats in the sauce oh but we have it fewer we have fewer rats now oh the rats made it taste better <laughs> you heard the man give him more rats <laughs> We got some in the back, throw some on. <laughs> Come on, son, how many rats do you want? You want half Four rat? Rats. You want half rat coverage or full rat coverage? No, I, I want the uh, rat lovers. Please, can I have the rat lovers? <laughs> uh, uh, Johnny, one rat lovers. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it's just us, but like... In Massachusetts, I've definitely seen a fair share of restaurants that were um, that had to be shut down for <laughs> reasons. But anyway, I think I agree with you. I, I think that that's a very predatory way. I mean, if you call any sort of rehab center and they don't have room for you or they're really far away, I feel like they would tell you, hey, these are places in your area where you could get help because they're not supposed to be 
trying to get you to fly five states away to get your get your money but this place was apparently (sighs) anyhow yeah he talks about his mom dying like it's a shopping list item it's bizarre um we still don't know why his business was being bombed we i have no idea his business presumably he has these billboards that he pays for that are pro-life billboards of some kind we we think this is what we've pieced together again it's never clear we don't ever see any images of them there's pictures in the book, by the way, in case oh, you didn't know that. There's, there's pictures, pictures of, of, of not the like billboard. Fields of brambles in like what were the like fields? He was trying to show you where he runs near his house along the train tracks. Oh yeah, when he's running away from tornadoes. How yes. many tornadoes does this dude run away from? Paris? I think there were three tornadoes <laughs> mentioned. Like, maybe three. don't go you should be able to look at the weather and there will be a thing that says like, hey bro, getting real twistery out there. Don't go for a run. But it happens to him three separate times. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. he's got these billboards that are assumedly pro-life of some kind, and he assumes he's being targeted by someone because of the billboards. Maybe that's what the attacks on his family have to do with. Maybe the whole carbon monoxide thing was him thinking someone went into his house and, like, twisted a mane the wrong way or something. I, I, I It's very vague. Yeah. And then someone sets a bomb off in one of his front office buildings or something. Uh, I think it's like it was like at the door of one of the the office, one of his because uh, his job he's like a, a scrap metal guy. Um, that's his main business is scrap metal. Apparently, Thus the whole car theft ring, I would assume. Yeah, well, the car again could find no detail, no further details on the car theft ring. Um, he just mentions that he was arrested and questioned for it, but could have just been someone was selling him hot cars and he got you know, wrapped up in the investigation. Yeah, I guess. Uh, anyway. No word on whether there were convictions in that case. I have no idea. He provides no other details. And I'm not going to sit here and look up fucking public records. But, um, yeah, so he works in scrap metal. And so, it's, you know, it's just like a kind of industrial building. And I, Chris, did you, were there two bombing incidents or just one? I think there was just the one. Yeah, I wasn't sure if there were, if there were more than one. I think there's just one. I thought they he does bring two. it up a few times. Again, there's no way to really know because everything is so unclear and inconsistent. I mean, there's evil, even logical inconsistencies in some of the things he brings up. Like, it's clear that he is he's a conservative Republican and has very strong views about things. But then there's a sentence where he says, well, due to our terrible government, people have to work more than more. People have to work full time. Like, aren't conservative Republicans all about working? Like, full-time? It's pretty weird to hear him be like, like, oh, I'm sorry, sir, are you saying that you would love a socialist or communist state where you didn't have to work 40 hours a week? No, so because then later on, he's like, the Democrats with their Obamacare. He blames Obamacare for his mother's death. Yes, actually. he does, which which is a wonderful passage we'll read in a second. But do you not find that logically in- inconsistent, Chris? Sure, if you're, I mean, that's if you're taking conservatives to be like they're supposed to have all the same thoughts. And I don't necessarily think that's true. I've met plenty of people that are conservative leaning that will randomly have a couple of leftist viewpoints if it thinks, if if they think it would benefit them personally. Yeah, fair enough. I mean, so maybe I just thought it was really weird to see a conservative Republican say that there was something wrong with the current Democratic government causing them to need to work full time. 
just thought that was a strange... That's just so he can say the economy bad and yeah. therefore I have to work all the time. Even though that sort doesn't, of thing. doesn't make sense. But anyway... Um, <clears throat> Oh, oh, uh, fuck. Sorry. I f- you would think, actually, if you're a scrap metal guy, usually your business probably goes up in worse times, I would assume, for people selling their metal that they can't use anymore. Yeah, I'm not I'm not really sure. I don't know anything about the scrap metal industry. But, you know, yeah, he's he done... He would know better than us. He's done well for himself with it. Uh, oh, and then, so I'm just, you know, at this point, I'm just scrolling through the book, and every yeah. page or two has notes, so I'm just, I'm just gonna tell you what they are. We're at that um, point of the episode, y'all. Yeah, so, uh, his son returns home from the rehab center, and, uh, it says, he had just recently returned home, sober, and ready for what was ahead. We spent it together at a local Indian tribe casino with a band we love called Foreigner. Why would you take your son who just recovered from addiction to a fucking casino? <laughs> Full of alcohol and gambling and probably drugs if you and wanted them. Foreigner. <laughs> and foreigner. Foreigner. The reason we're all doing drugs. No. Um, uh, what's, but, a, what is, what's, what's, song, what's their hit song? Par- I, uh, I, I mix them up. I mix also Foreigner and Foghead up all the time. I can never. I also mix them up and Ario Speedwagon up all the time, which is also a concert he goes to later. So we definitely squarely know dude's musical taste. Mm-hmm. He also says, like, this was a most blessed concert because you know God would also be a fan of the Ario. <laughs> like, yeah, I don't know how you yeah, could bro. certify that God would love Ario Speedwagon. Um, they, they mysteriously got free tickets out of nowhere for the concert that was sold out. Blessed from the heavens. Yeah, he's saying that, um... Oh, I want to know what love is. You know, that's the one. (laughs) That's, that's a foreigner tune. Oh, trying to think if there's a good joke here, but there isn't. (laughs) Yeah, I'm not going to make fun of, like, addiction with lyrics like that. No, I'm, I'm not going to. Um, so this is how he explains them winning tickets. An older Indian gentleman surprised us the night of the concert. He approached us like this. He pulled me in for a hug and pulled out his hand. He opened it like a butterfly, revealing to me two pieces of paper with numbers on it and pointed me in a direction. We walked that way. We ended up at a door with a man standing there. We asked, can you help us? Then to our surprise, he informed us that those pieces of paper were actually backstage passes passes to Foreigner. Uh, needless to say, I was no longer down in the dumps. It picked me up when I realized how much God loves me. All of the tests were presented to me to make sure I would do the right thing. From the hitchhiker in August, right before the bombing, to trusting in him during a tornado, I could have hid in a ditch or I could complete my run. I kept on running, saying to myself, I'm not afraid of anyone or anything with him on my side. Amen. So, there's no context. Like, did they apply for a contest to win the tickets? Why would, why would a Due to the casino, just walk up to them and give them two free backstage passes to a sold-out concert. Like, there's, again, no details. We have no idea. And then the next, the very next paragraph is, December is here and Christmas is approaching. It's time to finalize everything and finish the seventh project. The seventh project is David and Goliath's story. What? It's just fucking totally... Is this where I can bring up the, at the one point in the bulleted list at the front of the book where he says, I'm going to turn seven hands into 777 hands. And it is yes. never brought up again ever as to what that could possibly mean. I mean, I get that he's saying, you know, if you inspire people, then they'll inspire others, you know, and then, you know, your efforts will be doubled sure, or tripled or whatever. But it's a very I strange expect- way to put it. Yeah, I was expecting him to bring it back up later. But 
much like anything else in this book not really oh let's let's talk about some weird the weird things that happened at his house it started late december it was early in the morning i noticed a strong smell of roses and a message this you are not going to understand sick thanks for not explaining this in your book and just telling us outright fuck you you're not gonna understand this well in the past whenever i smelled roses early in the morning either something very good was about to happen or something very bad well, it didn't take long to realize it's going to be a good thing, uh, but a very tough battle to achieve it, which was Elizabeth's house. It was a big house in the woods with lots of rooms to shelter my family and whomever God sent into my life to take care of. The battle raged on for weeks. Seeing and learning more and more every day is how the Holy Spirit works. I understood very little, but tried to make sense of everything. It's gotten very physical and out of control. I began to notice unexplainable bruising cuts and scratches at the end of some evenings. I didn't know how to explain these to my wife, but I trusted unconditionally in the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is showing me a lot more than ever before. <clears throat> Almost like working as a team. In several situations where his message was really on me to do the right thing to achieve his goal, whatever it may be. This is only possible if you can slow your life down enough to trust in God and listen. It is that simple, but it is something we as men have a hard time doing. It's Friday, the first day of Lent. My mother and I always like to have first Lenten fish dinners together. We were sitting on the couch talking about the big house in the woods. I showed her the day before, telling her it's not looking good for us to get it. She was disappointed because she was looking forward to using that big home to gather her family back together on Christmas Eve. Sound Seconds later, like nothing I have ever heard before, a loud trumpet sound. This was the first of many we heard throughout the next several days. I yelled upstairs to my daughter, thinking that maybe one of her friends brought over their trumpet for the day. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Marcy, can I come hang out and play trumpet at your place? I mean, Oh, my dad will get mad. And, like, it would be one thing if if we had established before that one of his kids was like in school band or something and had friends that played trumpet, like that wouldn't be weird or absurd, but it sounds ridiculous to be like, Oh, I don't know. My kid, maybe my kid had a trumpet friend over. That's why I heard the trumpet. Like what? I went back to the couch to talk to mom. The phone rings and it's my realtor informing me that we have just won the bid on the house. I turned to my mother with joy and told her the good news. She looked at me with a smile. She then told me that she wasn't feeling well and she was going to go and lay down. Minutes later, my wife yelled out, Call 911! Something is wrong with your mother! She died in my arms minutes later. <laughs> and uh, I said to myself, What have I done? Why? Why? Why my mom? At this point, I had absolutely no clue at all what was going on in my life. I mean, he mentions his mother's funeral in the next paragraph, and that was, like, kind of it. So my terrible joke there was like, Hey, man, that's just God's cost for a big-ass mansion in the woods. <laughs> <laughs> you were praying for a mansion. He he sounded that trumpet and then killed your mom. That was the cost. Like, oh, uh, I mean, uh, because that's how it seems. The way yeah, it's written. It, like, why? Why would it not be related <clears throat> to that? Like, is the trumpet like his call for his mom to come on home to heaven or something? You know what I really think I happened, know. Paris? What? His daughter really did have someone over that played a trumpet there, and she didn't want her dad to know because someone was, like, fooling around up there. Yeah, probably. Playing the trumpet. She's like, no, no one's here, Dad. We're not smoking weed up here. Relax. Or there was just, like, a, a school or a music, uh, like, a, like, a band or something nearby. Like, uh, there are so many reasonable explanations to hear a trumpet. I don't think there would be a school nearby because at some point in the book he mentions that he lives 50 yards away from the power grid of the world? <laughs> Do you remember that part? Yes, there is. There is. What did that mean? Um. Oh, and then he says, "Oh, sorry. Let's let's stick with the mom death for for this for right now." Um. 
It says, two months have passed since my mother's unexpected and preventable passing. We have no idea why it was preventable. She was always an inspiration to me, even though I didn't always express it. I always counted on her. She was the only one left to prop me up. I'm alone now with no support on this earth that is. And I was like, yeah, except that wife and son and daughter and other children and the Knights of Columbus and your Fijian priests and your co-workers. And, like, he, yeah, fuck all. He talks throughout the entire book about how supported he is and how he has all these people in his life, but then his mom died. And I understand. I'm not saying that like, Oh, just because you, you know, buck up, dude. You just lost your mom, whatever. That's not what I'm saying. It's just an extreme mischaracterization of his life thus far told to us to say that once his mother dies, he has no support on this earth. He clearly has other support systems. Uh, uh, Let me find the part where he blames Obamacare for his mom's death. Ah, no. Now, what I mean by preventable, by the way, this is a whole two pages later is before Obamacare, the new health program, the doctors would not have blinked an eye and would have done an emergency surgery on my mother the Friday before her death. Instead, they sent her home because under the new health care changes and rules, she did not meet the surgery standards and would not pay for the procedure. So let me put this in a context you can easily understand. If Obama was not president and there was no new signature health care program, my mother would be alive today. If there were not 19 new forms of abortion-inducing drugs and wildly out-of-control birth control measures in the so-called signature program, there would be more beautiful people in this world, including my mother and the young. So, I don't understand what he's talking about, because again, he doesn't explain. I'm willing to entertain the idea that there was some kind of insurance mishap that, you know, whereby his mom didn't end up getting an emergency surgery, but like, he doesn't explain it <laughs> at all. I don't think the ACA is responsible for this, man. I think yeah, it's I the agree. insurance company. Yeah, I agree. I mean, he thinks that something about regu- something about the ACA regulations, I, I, that just doesn't make sense to me. I mean, the whole point of the ACA um, was to expand health care for people. So I don't really, I, again, you know, I'm not like an expert in fucking health care law in the U.S., but it it doesn't it doesn't have a ring of truth to it. Let's just say the statement seems false, and and because we're not provided with any evidence, it's not a very convincing passage, right? If you're trying to convince us that Obamacare killed your mom, you should probably have those receipts, right? You should probably have a lot of detail about how that happened to convince your reader, but he does not. Uh, I also yeah, don't know I, anything why am I about supposed to, nineteen why? abortion-inducing drugs. I don't know anything about that. Why am I supposed to just take his word for it that the ACA was responsible for this denial of care? Yeah, it. No idea. Sounds like your rage is a little bit misdirected. Yeah, and it's really that's that's the problem is that, you know, with someone's autobiography, presumably you're meant to read it and come around to finding empathy and maybe some agreement with them like them as a person, um, learn about their lives. And I mean, I, I guess I did develop some empathy for this man. Um, because again, he does seem well-intentioned, but just like you just said, very misdirected in a lot of ways. Um, but otherwise it fails at telling me much about his life because it doesn't provide any detail. It's very, it's incoherently structured. Um, yeah, just doesn't doesn't do it. It's all kind of, I don't know. I'm trying to I'm trying to find. Oh, I promised y'all BDSM angels. We are here. Yeah. We have arrived. 
Nobody, not even my family, understands what I am doing. Some of my best friends on Earth quit taking my phone calls. I am alone here now. Is this what I really wanted? Is what I asked myself when I went to bed thinking that night. It began again like this. It was approximately 3.30 a.m. I felt a pat on my butt. Wop, wop, wop. On with the show, I thought. This is it. (laughs) It stunned me for a moment, but I just went back to sleep. I am very familiar with the other side waking me. What? (laughs) There was another part where he describes like he's having trouble going to sleep one night and the Holy Spirit grabs him and lifts him awake. (laughs) And all I could think of was like, oh, fucking Holy Spirit. Let me sleep, dude. What's wrong with you? Come on. We can be holy when I'm awake. Uh, Oh, and then like a paragraph later. Uh... (laughs) Uh, then suddenly I remember a conversation between my uncle and I we had about the big biblical, fib- f- biblical figure, Job, a couple of months ago. I said to him that I don't completely understand the story, but I believe he gets real sick. I dodged this bullet thinking, well, if I'm going through what Job did, my sickness must have been when I got back from Italy and ended up in the hospital with an unknown illness that shut down my pancreas. And again, my note was, maybe it's the untreated diabetes. But who knows if this was before or after the yeah, whole diabetes that's scare. Yeah, I have no idea. Um, we don't know when he went to Italy. I, I think it might be in the bullet points at the beginning, but by this point in the book, I'm not going to reference your your notated bullets at the beginning. Um, the pain is so bad at night uh, that I was on my knees in tears thinking it might finally be the end. I didn't know what to do. Again, maybe go to the doctor. Um... Oh, and then there's the next... Again, I'm sorry, I'm just like running from one insane thing to the next, but that's just what this book is. That's that's what he's doing the whole um, time. A few paragraphs later, for example, on the 4th of July this year, my whole family were enjoying the fireworks show in our front yard when something unexpected happened. An out-of-control firework landed in a box of mortar shells close by our large group of family and friends. The whole group scattered, except for my wife and I. We did not move. We froze. We held down by the mighty power of the Holy Spirit. Two mortars hit the window just a couple of feet above us. If we would have gotten up, we surely would have been hit by a mortar and very possibly killed. Wow, right? Amen. First of all, why haven't fireworks shows in your front yard? Second of all, it's not very unexpected if there's a stray firework that hits other explosives <laughs> that you have left out in the open. <laughs> yeah, I was like, that's not ex- unexpected. Yeah, it's pretty pretty standard fare, actually. Ugh. <laughs> oh. For, like, this fucking Looney Tunes July 4th party that you're having out here with just loose mortar shells? Who has loose mortar shells? I don't know. I don't know. Why? I don't know. Um, And then we move into the passage where he realizes that he is at fault for some abortions that have happened, which I was actually surprised by. I thought this guy was going to be full tilt, like, it's the women. If they didn't shut that down, that's their fault. But, you know, he actually says, you know, I was a fool for not realizing how my reckless behavior affected others. And this this goes back to the one of the few good things about this book where it's clear that he realizes that he's done some shitty things and feels bad about it and is trying to fix that. Because um, apparently he had a quote unquote wild lifestyle that caused some abortions to happen. <laughs> he is positive in at least one case because it's revealed all the way at the end that his wife actually had an abortion um, when they were younger and didn't tell him for a really long time. So. I think it was 
an abortion that he like fathered. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, it was just his just wife. want to make that yeah. part clear. Here. Yes, yeah. Um, you know, he does actually say, "I to this day believe that us men are ninety nine percent at fault, and it is time we take full responsibility for what is going on today." But then he finishes that, and I was like, "Oh, I'm with you. I'm with you." And then it says. What is going on today with abortion on demand and the feminist movement that we have today? And I'm like, oh, buddy, buddy. Oh, you're so close. You're so close. Not quite. Um, he then talks about how his experiences with the Holy Spirit are becoming more and more real. Like he hears a voice in his head and it's the Holy Spirit. And then he talks about meeting various angels. And that's those are kind of the points where I, I felt like this was closer to episode 50. I just keep forgetting the name of that weird screenplay that we read. The Eclipse of Darkness. The Eclipse of Darkness. Yeah. It started to feel like that. He he makes other absurd claims that he he built his first house at 10. And I was like, I mean, maybe you did, but that's pretty weird. And he doesn't explain it. Just mentions it casually. Oh, he talks about how... When he was overweight uh, as a as a young kid, uh, in ninth grade, he was overweight and he got teased a lot. He said, well, that didn't last long. I made a major change my 10th grade year. The first day back, I beat the shit out of a couple of seniors who used to pick on me and also people. And then he Major follows, changes around here. And then he follows it up with saying, oh, I lost 80 pounds and, and started lifting <laughs> weights. And it's like, don't you think you should have reversed those ideas? Like the major change was that you lifted weights and and lost 80 pounds and not that not that you beat the shit out of people <laughs> i don't know maybe maybe that was the most major of the more major of the change right most major mm-hmm. of the changes um oh uh, oh and then he didn't he uh shattered the dreams of his friends who wanted to go to college because he he got them all suspended and ruined their chances and he said he didn't care though because he was not really very good at school so fuck his friends they didn't <laughs> yeah, get into like, college because of him I don't give a shit about my friends college ball dreams whatever i didn't care about that and this is all very strange again because this is a man this is like an actual this is supposedly a true story he tells us like six times this is a true story there was another book we read that also did that that was like it's gonna start it's a true story. This is a true story, and it's going to begin. It did the same thing, and I don't remember which one. I think it, it was actually either, was the Eclipse of Darkness. Yeah, I'm pretty oh sure my it was God. Eclipse of Darkness. They have they had the same tendency for like now we are starting. Here is the beginning. It is starting now. Here is the start. Also, this is a true story. This is all true. Yeah, I get it. Um. All right, Paris. I. Uh, I, anyway. I think we, we kind of tapped the well here. There's oh, like maybe a couple more things worth bringing up. We should probably talk about his his the title cover. So the cover of this book, When Trumpets Ring the Battle, Trumpets, if you've noticed, has the word Trump in it. And on the cover, the letters in Trumpets that spell Trump, T-R-U-M-P, are designed and colored differently. So it's pretty clear that he's into Trump. And he mentions, he never mentions Trump by name in the text, which is interesting. Uh, he explains that he, that, um, fuck, what did he say? He basically oh. says, hey, politicians aren't always, the politicians that will serve Christ won't look like what you expect. Of course they won't have a plan at all. They might even be shitty people, but that's the best kind of person to lead us because then, because they're shitty, they know 
about being shitty or something. Yeah, <laughs> he claims that um, universities think that they are smarter than God, quote, and are single-handedly destroying America. I mean, that's patently false, right? Like, no university, no university slogan is like, I don't know, ver- ver- Veritas, smarter than God. Like, no one has that on their college seal. Um, it's it's a I really... the angle he's taking here is because frequently academia will say this isn't true about religious stuff that they are claiming to be smarter than God. I get, I get it, but again, you get a phrase that appropriately or you just sound like an asshat. Um, he further says, uh, we need a leader today. Sorry. What I am telling you all now is that the leader we need today is not the one who tells you his plan step-by-step and claims and convinces you that he can fix everything. That's not realistic. And it has not worked out very well for me in the past. Yeah. Like someone not having a plan and being a leader is a little bad, right? Like you want, you want someone that has even a vague idea of what they want to do. Uh, Everyone, and, follow me. What and are we going to do? I don't know. <laughs> and if you're, if you're talking about a president of a country, you need some detailed plans so people can make an informed decision when they elect you, right? Um, but in his mind, no plan is the best plan. That's kind of like the, hey, if you're fucking up, you're not fucking up idea that he mentioned earlier. Uh, political correctness came from the colleges that destroyed the country. Okay. Uh, uh, he also makes a statement that says, uh, let's quit competing for the poor and the handicap and simply the rest of the world. I think what he's trying to say is don't help them. Yeah. Um, which... Which I don't, and I don't, it says they are in God's hands, let's trust God with them and make the children first. And maybe, just maybe, you can acquire some of the gifts I have. Again, very difficult to tell what the actual meaning is here. Maybe Um, he's like, defund disability checks and put that towards pro-life clinics like this? Yeah, hang on, let me read the whole passage so we can get... Perhaps he actually is pro, like, you know, early child care instead. Well, in some... It it seems like he almost makes those statements, but not quite a few times, but it's... It it more... Yeah, I don't know. Anyway, so it says, um... Sometimes good deeds can get in the way of the right deed by not trusting God and saying to yourself, well, I'm trying and at least I'm doing this. That type of thinking right there is why abortion is still here. Let's quit competing for the poor and the handicap and simply the rest of the world. They are in good hands. Let's trust God with them and make the children first. And maybe, just maybe, you can acquire some of the gifts I have. Really having a hard time following. Yeah, I'm having, yeah, that's the whole book. I have a really hard time figuring out. And the problem, right, when you're not specific is that idiots like us read your book and say, oh, he must have been saying that the cost of his house was the death of his mother because you weren't because you wrote it in a way that wasn't clear, you know? Um, so yeah, if you're listening to this for some reason, Mr. Hetzer, and you're like, they got it all wrong, it's because we have no context. Uh, he also thinks that God controls the weather. I think that's a popular belief, right? Um, just tabbing through. Oh, uh, this is the Islamophobia part, uh, so buckle up. It's March 2015, and ISIS is advancing across the world. No one is safe. 
Christians are dying in mass numbers, but for some apparent reason, America has been protected. Remember what his promise was to us as Christians. I will bring you to a safe place in the final hour where on this earth. In these most difficult times, where can every ethnic background come and be safe? A place consisting of mostly God-fearing, good people, loving people, the land found under God, our God, the one and only God, Yahu. <laughs> Not Yahweh as it's supposed to be. It's Yahu. Yahu! <laughs> the one true God. <laughs> Come down to Yahoo's Roadhouse. <laughs> Some tasty bread from the Levant. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we got four dipping sauces for the body of Christ. We got. We got your zaatar. We got your. Uh, we got some some mint. Don't forget the rat sauce. <laughs> Sorry. Continuing. America was his promise to take us away from the final hour, not out of the final hour. Why was it that 2,000 years ago when Jesus said to man, you can tear down this temple and I will rebuild it in three days? Well, what if the temple of God has been rebuilt the last three days and the Dome of the Rock is setting on that rebuilt temple? And who seats there? Islam, the complete opposite of Christ. Who was shot in the head and Islam ravaged the Middle East? The Antichrist is the embodiment of Islam. I read that Who, as printed, by the way. Who as got I shot? Why? I <laughs> can't tell you. I also don't understand why he doesn't see. I, I don't. A lot of people have this problem with Islam and not understanding that it's part of the Abrahamic faiths, which is Islam, Judaism, and Christianity. Actually, in in order of when they appeared, Judaism, then Christianity, then Islam. So, I I don't really understand how you can sit here and say that Islam is the Antichrist when, like, people who are Muslim believe in the same God. It's very weird Racism. that... Racism. What? Racism. <laughs> yeah. It's racism. It's really weird, though, because... Christianity also start they all started in the same place. So, like... Well, usually you hear people with this bent saying, well... They're barbaric. They behead people. This and that. And it's like, well, no, most of them aren't that way. And there's plenty of Christians out there who are willing to take up arms and be violent about their faith as well. You're not immune from that. Yeah, I don't think any religion. I mean, well, unless you're like Sikh or something or Jonas, like you're, yeah. Unless you're in an explicitly anti-violent pacifist faith, I, I think all faiths even there's, then there's gonna be someone that's like yeah. no but true pacifism is if i beat the shit out of you <laughs> i mean well that's 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 a lot of christians the way of the fist mm-hmm. um i'm gonna continue we must look for the unholy trinity let's start with the leader of the free world who just seems to be literally doing nothing from his most glorious arrival in his primary in Denver from the pillars of smoke that reach the same height as Mount Olive to having two pups. One of them of which they took one third Swiss guards and whisked him away to an undisclosed location in the mountains on the river for his safety. Then there's the acting Pope of no enclaves and the one who grasps social justice, global warming and communism to the great military leader who is marching in battles in the Ukraines to the two witnesses at the end who rise up. What the fuck did I just read? 
If this seems like proto QAnon stuff, guess what this dude was posting on Twitter shortly before he was banned from Twitter? Oh, yes. Yeah. So this right before we started recording, I was like, oh, I wonder if Gregory Hetzer's on Twitter. And he was. But then when I went to click on the tweet, his account had been suspended. So and we and found we found an archived. Yeah, we found an archived tweet uh, that referenced Q. So you probably got purged with all those Q accounts. Probably like a couple months back. Um, I mean, the end, I'm at the end of the book. There's just a sentence that says the next several pages are pictures and emails. And then there's still blocks of text. There's still paragraphs, but now it's interspersed with his handwritten notes, which are almost entirely illegible. I couldn't read them. I, I, it all began Labor Day weekend, 2008, setting in my yacht, drinking whiskey and smoking cigars thinking I'm very successful and I don't have time for church anymore. This is just anymore. the first few lines of the book. Yeah, I th- again, um, this was not edited. Uh, Except so, there was someone. Oh, <laughs> there, there was a person. Can we talk about the fucking real MVP? Um, so the real MVP, the woman who suffered the most in this book, it's a woman named Shauna Myers. Miss Myers was tasked with uh, transcribing all of Gregory Hetzer's notes into electronic format. Shauna. Thank you for your service. I don't know how the fuck you made it through. This is just insanity. I I don't know. And clearly she just copied verbatim. She did no editing. Which is honestly good for you, Shauna, because you you would have had to charge thousands of dollars in editing time. I'm assuming you were unpaid for this. Um... There's a bunch of weird notes at the end about how he kept all of this secret until now because he he didn't want to boast about it. But now like he has a website. I, I don't know how why it matters that like you waited to tell people you were doing it. I think um, he wrote this right when Trump secured the nomination and he was like, now is the time mm-hmm. to let this be known because this is the person to throw your support behind. Oh, yeah. Here's your here's your note. My home is within 50 feet of the main power grid of the world. Is the main power grid of the world in, in Michigan? I don't think they're all connected to one spot. So, yeah, no. I'm, I'm going to go with no. I'm going to go with no on that. That's a, that's a no. I don't think no. I know they have like Internet lines in the ocean. Pretty sure they don't got power lines. Um, He thinks that he tells us at the end that he thinks he met St. Michael. It's a very I'm sure I'm sure you can guess very unconvincing story about that. Um, dude, I don't know. So yes, like his whole goal was to install ultrasound machines into these crisis pregnancy centers. And he raised a bunch of money to buy them and went to install them himself in a lot of, uh, a lot of instances. And that's his whole jam. Okay. But Paris, how many lives did he save? I mean, oh, I forgot (laughs) about the math. (laughs) Ah, I gotta find my math note. Where's my math note? There's a line in this book where he says, okay, I saved 17 or something like that lives in five years. And thus, he makes a claim. He's got a calculator. It's, um, oh, I wrote it down. Okay, he thinks that in 200 years, so that's assuming that this these ultrasound machines are still in use 200 for 200 years which 
to me, just shows a complete lack of understanding about everything. Because you think why a scrap would scrap metal guy would understand things break down? Yeah, you would. You would think. Yeah, you think he'd understand that um, technology becomes obsolete pretty quickly. Um, so first of all, he thinks these ultrasound machines are going to work for are going to be there and work for two hundred years, and he thinks that they're going to save one million. 377,810 lives. That's a very specific number. I think he derived it because there was like, he said that they saved, was it like seven, like seven women decided not to have abortions in like a certain period of time. And then he must've just extrapolated from there. But that's not, those ultrasound machines are not going to be there working in 200 years. They're not even going to probably be there in 20 years. All right, let's just divide this number here. Okay. So I'm going to take my calculator out on my phone here. 1,377,810. Divided by 200 years. Divided by 200 years. Okay, so he thinks... He claims a rate of 6,889.05 lives saved per year. Let's, let's break that down by day. So that divided right. by 365. So he by thinks 18.87 women are not... 18.87 babies will not be aborted per day due to this machine, due to one machine. <laughs> that just seems really high. I think that's really high. You really got to get them in and out the door at that rate. You're like, you really got to... Your operation has to be super streamlined. <sighs> I, I mean, and to, I mean, to be fair... Uh, to his cause, I do think things like ultrasounds um, do, do make people reconsider because they can see the fetus, and that's the whole point, right? So I'm sure that the presence of these machines will change the minds of some women, and they will decide to give birth instead of having an abortion. But I don't think it's 18.87 women per day. <laughs> Due to this one machine, or even seven of, or even those seven machines, I, I don't know. That's still yeah. Seems I'll high. divide them up. I'll even assume like eighteen machines or something. Yes. Just, but just assuming you're going to get eighteen separate women in there every single day. I'm sorry, eighteen point eight seven women. It just seems. This is going to be a headless woman every day. Yeah, you have to deal with. <laughs> it just seems high. Um. Anyway, at the beginning of the book, he tells us the plan. Convert all planned parenthoods to crisis centers and all of our homes into Elizabeth's houses. This book will tell us how. He never says how. Spoiler, he doesn't. So at the end. He never end, says how. Um, there is a section called The Answer. And all it is is like everyone needs to make their houses Elizabeth's house and we all have to try to prevent abortions. And it's like that's. So what's the plan, though? Those are your goals. Those aren't your tactics. To, to accomplish that goal. So I feel like his tactics are like praying, putting ultrasounds in crisis pregnancy centers and going to church. I feel like those are the elements of his plan, but it's not really clear. No, I think he's like, just do the thing. Mm-hmm. Just um, change all the planet planned parenthoods. Just do that. That's just the change plan. them all. It, how are you going to do that? Well, you just do it. Well, I think he wants, uh, he obviously wants a, a, a Christian government. He then talks about like converting Catholics back to be re being Republican. Uh, 
He also thinks that we have technology to tell if someone is lying or not, which is hilarious to hear from a Trump supporter. Mm-hmm. Um, he says that a few times, and I'm never clear on exactly what he's talking about. Probably just like lie detector machines or something. Um. Oh, he also subscribes to the uh, very, very false theory that um, anyone who any medical center or hospital that performs abortions then sells off the baby's body parts to the highest bidder. So first of all, most abortions don't contain body parts. (laughs) Uh, Secondly, that's been widely uh, and thoroughly debunked. So it's just a misuse of cells. Like they think because there's cells that will eventually become a body that is body parts. Yeah. Um, And the other the other bizarre thing about all of this is that so stem cells sometimes come from abortions and sometimes they are used in uh, new cutting edge medical treatments like remdesivir, which Trump took to stave off dying from COVID. <laughs> Would so, have really love to have seen the tweets about that. Yeah. A what, month ago. Wouldn't have been nice. But I think for a lot of these people, um, they don't experience the same cognitive dissonance that we would, you know, looking at those facts saying, well, you clearly hate the medical use of um, cell stem cells coming from abortions. Uh, and yet this man who you support as leader benefits from those very stem cells in this treatment. I mean, to them, the, the means justify the end. They don't care about any of this shit that Trump does personally because he's pushing their agendas through in policy. So that's why no one gives a shit that he's had all these affairs and fucks porn stars. They don't give a shit because he's pushing, he's putting hardcore conservative judges, you know, in, in circuit courts, um, in federal courts. And it's like, I, I guess I, I just try to explain that to people a lot. It's something that a lot of people seem to miss. Like, oh, how could they possibly support this person who is antithetical to everything in his personal life. And it's like, it doesn't matter because to them it's, you know, what he can accomplish and not who he is as a person. In the end, they get what they want. Yeah, exactly. Their, their political goals accomplished. Yeah. It doesn't matter to them if, if Trump takes an, an abortion, a serum that prevented him, you know, that maybe, well, again, uh, he took a treatment for when he was sick with COVID that had some, potential abortion stem cells in it they care that he's supportive of efforts to um get rid of roe versus get rid of you know the legality of roe versus wade and um supporting all these heartbeat bills and shit like that you know um that's what matters to them so anyway that was a bit of a rant that i didn't actually want to get into but anyway all right paris I so think, here's honestly I don't I think we just wrap it up here. Yeah. So so can we fix it? Um, Yeah. So look, Mr. Hetzer, you need to hire a serious editor to revise this entire thing with you. You need someone to help you flesh out your thoughts and memories so that you can provide more detail to the reader. Um, Structure, coherence, spelling and syntax were all also significant problems in this book. I recognize that ADHD and dyslexia played a major role with all of those. However, 
you can get help from friends, family, or professionals to improve all of those things. Reach out for help and get feedback before sending something out into the world, especially when you feel you have an important message and you're not just publishing for your own pleasure, you know? Uh, please just do not publish your bullet points and notes as part of the core book, especially the first part, because that's how this book opened. Uh, If you want to add any kind of notes, you can do so at the end as part of an appendix, and that's fine. I'm not really sure what the utility of that would be, but that's a better place for it at the end so that it's an optional thing to read so you don't have to skip through it or be really confused at the beginning. Uh, Secondly, photos and images of things such as letters or or what have you should be placed at relevant points in the text rather than almost exclusively at the end. Because when you get to the end of the book and you see these photos, you're like, wait, what was this? Who was this about? You know, you're not developing any relations between what you read and the images you're seeing. They should be interspersed in the text when they are relevant. Uh, Also, just don't don't just add random photos of your friends that you never mentioned in the book at just just putting them at the end with a caption. That's pretty weird. Uh, Lastly, you promise to explain to the reader how to do something at the beginning, uh, which was how to convert all Planned Parenthoods to crisis pregnancy centers and make everyone's houses Elizabeth's houses. And you didn't really do that. I mean, so either remove the promise at the start of the book or follow through with actual steps and an explanation as to how to achieve those goals. So just just saying at the end, like, oh, you got to pray and stop people from getting abortions and put ultrasounds and, and make everyone in everyone's houses into Elizabeth's houses. That That's not a plan. And I know you're not a fan of plans, but most people are. So if you're publishing a book for other people to digest and you're trying to change minds or, or encourage people, like you, you got to make it coherent and you got to deliver what you promised at the beginning. <sighs> All right, Paris, I want to leave us with a review on the Amazon page for this book. Okay. What did what did what, what did they have to say about reading? There's only like I, like seven reviews, seven okay. ratings, and like a handful of reviews that are written out on this book. Um, and this one was my favorite. It says, "Great movie. I actually forgot I watched this. Four stars." <laughs> <laughs> what if there's a companion film and we just didn't know? I don't think there is, Paris. No. Oh. Anyway, this is a real person, and this was apparently the attempted story of his life. Uh, I don't know, man. You just gotta, just gotta hire some professionals. Like, it's also tough. It's tough for us because we're just like I just so so deeply and fervently um, don't agree with this man on just about everything. <laughs> so it's kind of a tough one in that respect. Um, Oh, all right. All right. Well, thanks if, for sticking uh, with us, everyone. We thanked you, our patrons at the start. So yeah, but uh, if you want to join that list of patient patients, wow, <laughs> they're I'm, terminal. Please, no, no. <laughs> if you would like to support the show uh, and join that list of patrons yourself, you can donate to us on Patreon for various rewards. Uh, you can subscribe and follow us on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, or Goodreads. You can share the show and tell some people about it. You can also rate or review it on a podcast platform of your choice. Um, if you want to contact us directly, you can send an email to terriblebookclub at gmail.com. You can message us on Goodreads, Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. Um, we also have a Kofi page. Oh, yeah. 
if you would like to donate a coffee to us. Yeah, so um, Kofi or Coffee is just a website where you can just do a one-time donation rather than signing up for monthly. So if you can't afford to give us one, five, or ten dollars every month, but you just want to do a one-time, like here's a buck or two or ten or whatever, you can do that on Kofi. Um, so we have that. it's K O dash F I. If you just look up Terra Book Club Kofi, you can find it. Chris, why are you laughing? Here's a twenty, kid. Get yourself a nice rat lovers. <laughs> Oh, this episode brought to you by uh, <laughs> Pinocchio's Uncle's Rat Lovers and BDSM Angels. <laughs> but just really light, really light BDSM. Like just, yeah. just you know, he's the angels just trying to just trying to see if Greg's into it before proceeding further. Oh, anyway, I yeah, right. I got I got nothing else in this book. Uh, my recommendation is don't don't read this book. Um, don't read this book for a lot of reasons, but just don't do it. All right, Paris. With that, um, I think we're all set for now. We've got two episodes to go until episode 100. Woo! Yeah, um, pretty. I'm actually pretty excited about the next book because Chris started reading it ahead of me, and it actually seems kind of fun. So I'm hoping for a fun read after a few reads that had us thinking about heavier topics. Yeah, so. this one is for sure lighter fare. All right, well. We'll see you then. Oh, with when that. We, when we read... Demon Pig. Ta-da! Uh, yeah. Demon Pig. That's the next book. Demon Pig. All right, Paris. Bye, Paris. <laughs> Bye, Chris. <laughs>